Hello and welcome to the first ever episode of the Most Pleasant Exhaustion Podcast presented by ITL Coaching and Performance. My name is George Darden. I'm an endurance athlete and coach here in Atlanta, Georgia. On this podcast, we'll be doing interviews, we'll be reviewing products and workouts, we'll be talking about training philosophy, previewing races, and generally discussing issues of interest to the local, national, and international endurance community. I've been a coach for about 15 years. I've been an endurance athlete for about 25 years. Unfortunately, though, I can't do any of the things I like to do right now. I can't swim, I can't bike, I can't run because I'm injured. Uh, It's what's on my mind right now, and I wanted to spend the time on our first podcast today talking about injury, not only about the treatment that I've undergone specifically for my injury, but also about the mindset of the injured sports person, the mindset of the injured athlete. I'm not myself right now because I can't do something that's a big part of who I am. And I think it's worth discussing what some research says about the way that people feel and act when they can't do the sports they've become accustomed to doing. I've had several injuries throughout the course of my endurance career, but the one that has me sidelined right now is located in my left heel. Uh, specifically, I have what's called bursitis, and bursitis, as the name suggests, is an inflammation of the bursa. Uh, a bursa is a fluid-filled sac that cushions various joints around your body. You have bursa on your heels, you have them on your knees, you have them on your elbows, you have them in your wrists, you have them in your shoulders, they're everywhere. Um, and they can, from time to time, get inflamed. Um, What causes the inflammation, there can be a few different things. In the heel, where mine is located, there's usually something called a Haglund's deformity. A Haglund's deformity is an outgrowth of bone on the heel that begins rubbing and threatening the joint right there, uh, such that the bursa becomes enlarged and inflamed. Um, Even though I have an obvious growth on the side of my heel that you can touch and feel and that very much hurts uh, to, to mess with, Uh, For me, it's actually scar tissue on the Achilles that appears to be inflaming the bursa. Uh, We treated the inflammation a few times throughout the course of this fall. I got two different injections into my heel, one that went directly into the bursa itself. And while they made it feel better, they didn't actually fix the fundamental underlying problem. Uh, Therefore, a couple of weeks would go by, I'd start running again, I'd feel great, everything would be going well, and then the scar tissue that's built up on my Achilles would once again re-inflame the bursa, and I would have bursitis once again. I was caught in this cycle of, of inflaming my bursa, treating it, starting to run just barely once again, building hope, and then, of course, having those hopes dashed by the recurrence of bursitis. Uh, given the regnant nature of this, given how stubborn it was, uh, my doctors, my podiatrist suggested that I could go about two paths. One, they said I could have surgery, uh, which is a very invasive and very aggressive surgery that involved actually debriding your Achilles from the bone uh, and then reattaching it uh, more tightly and more securely. Um, there's a long recovery period from that, um, and, and it wasn't really all that appealing to me. Or I could try something called extracorporeal shockwave therapy. Um, extracorporeal shockwave therapy is a different approach, um, but it involves shooting mechanical pulses into the affected area. Um, It comes from actually treating uh, kidney stones. Uh, Maybe 20, 30 years ago, they actually began to treat kidney stones by breaking them apart using mechanical pulses fired from outside of the body. Uh, That would, of course, make them easier to pass. Only a few years after they were using them to break apart kidney stones, Uh, some doctors began to think that they might be a good way to break apart scar tissue as well. And so 
there are really two goals when they seek to do extracorporeal shockwave therapy. The first is to, as I said, break up scar tissue. Uh, scar tissue is very inflexible. Uh, you can't move scar tissue the way that you can move healthy tendon or ligament tissue. Um, the idea was that if the scar tissue is broken apart, then when my Achilles heals, it'll be healthy tissue that can move and perform properly. Uh, the second goal of the extracorporeal shockwave therapy was to trigger my body's natural anti-inflammatory responses. Essentially, it would send a signal to my brain that there was trauma in my body that needed my body's natural ways of dealing with trauma. Um, a lot of times, if you have an injury for a while, your brain will almost forget that the injury is there, and it will quit treating the injury. It'll quit sending messages to that part of the body. It'll quit trying to heal that. Um, it'll simply become accustomed to it, and it'll be an embedded part of your your life. Um, because I have had this for a long time, I've had it for years and years and years, it didn't bother me at all in 2013, 2014, after I had wrestled with it all throughout 2012. And then it bothered me all through, 2000, through 2015 as well. Um, it's very likely my brain pretty much forgot that this was something that needed treating. And so the micro traumas that would be caused by extracorporeal shockwave therapy would promote a natural anti-inflammatory response, which would include uh, some neovascularization. There would be new blood vessels and increased blood flow to that area. Uh, so in short, it's strategic damage. It's uh, poking holes in my Achilles in order to inspire my body to grow back healthier. Um, and that sounds kind of grotesque, but I'm actually okay with the idea. In fact, I was kind of excited about the idea because it's essentially the same basic principle of training. Um, in training, of course, you break yourself down and then you recover and your body builds itself back stronger than it was before. If you've ever heard someone say that you don't get any faster in training, but rather you only get faster in recovery, well, that's kind of what they meant. Um, the problem, though, of course, is that it's slow. It's gradual. It couldn't be just fixed, and I really want it to be just fixed. Uh, folks have been asking me since they've seen me walking around in a boot over the course of the past couple of weeks if it was successful, and I don't know whether it was successful, and I'm not going to know whether it was successful for another eight to ten weeks when I start running again, and we see whether my bursa quickly becomes inflamed, as it always has. Um, I have been wearing a boot for a couple of weeks. I'm starting to wear it a little bit less right now. I'm going to talk some more about the recovery protocols here in just a few minutes. Um, I have started lifting weights, just barely went back to the gym for the first time today. Uh, I'll start swimming again, hopefully in a couple of weeks. I'll start cycling again, hopefully the next three to four weeks at most. Um, and then I'll start running again about two and a half months after the surgery took place, uh, which should put me running I believe at the beginning of April. I have a 10K scheduled on April 16th, so hopefully I'll be able to run that. I don't expect to be in very good shape, uh, but I do hope to be able to actually complete it. It's the Star Wars 10K in Disney. It's going to be a fun family trip. Um, there's no guarantee it'll be successful, of course, though. Uh, I've been looking to research. It's sporadic, the research is. There was a 2006 study uh, on the effectiveness of extracorporal shockwave therapy for plantar fasciitis, uh, and it found it to be very effective. Uh, there was a follow-up study to that in 2007 that also found it to be very effective for plantar fasciitis. Uh, there was a 2008 study for plantar or for patellar tendonitis uh, in your knee uh, that estimated that this sort of therapy, extracorporal shockwave therapy, would be about 75% effective. 
Um, there's mixed results with regards to Achilles tendonitis, but there's a lot of very strong anecdotal evidence, both on message boards and from the doctors themselves. Um, I talked to two different doctors about the possibility of, of doing the, the surgery, or the procedure, it wasn't a surgery, uh, and one estimated about an 80% success rate, and the other one estimated a 95% success rate. So I have high hopes, but we'll see. Um, now, I mentioned there's no established protocol, and that's actually one of the reasons why there is such equivocal research on it. Um, there's variances with regards to intensity, to the number of pulses that you do in a particular session, uh, and even the frequency and number of sessions that you would do. Uh, there are some doctors that would suggest that you need to do extracorporeal shockwave therapy at a low intensity several times over the course of two weeks, and that's the best way to treat it. Um, and there are others that say you need to do a high intensity, a whole big dose at once in a gigantic epic session. Um, and it's that latter sort that both of the podiatrists that I talked to recommended. Um, the shockwave therapy that I underwent was 2,600 pulses were sent into my Achilles uh, at a very high intensity. Uh, they were intense enough to where they actually numbed up my foot before doing it. I actually had some shockwave therapy at a low intensity uh, back in 2012, and it was undoubtedly the most painful therapy I'd ever undergone. And this is from somebody who has years and years and years worth of very intense and deep massage therapy uh, and physical therapy. This was very, very intense and very, very uncomfortable. Um, they numbed my foot this time, though, so I couldn't feel anything, um, and they went to work. Um, there's also no established recovery protocol, um, which is something that I've kind of dealt with as well. Specifically, that means that I had one doctor who said I needed to wear a boot for four weeks, but I could begin lifting weights immediately and probably begin cycling as soon as I took the boot off at four weeks. And I had a second doctor who said you have to wear the boot entirely for two weeks, uh, and then you can wear it sporadically after that if you'd like, but you can't do any weightlifting during those first two weeks. You probably won't be able to do any cycling for about six weeks, um, and both of them actually agreed that I wouldn't be able to run for about eight weeks or more. Um, I also uh, had from both doctors an advisory that I didn't have to sleep or shower in the boot. Now, need to say I didn't shower in the boot, but pretty much everything I read suggested that dorsiflexion, keeping your, your toes pulled up towards your knee, towards your shin, uh, helps in the regeneration of healthy tendon tissue. And so I actually did sleep in the boot for the first couple of weeks. And even now I've quit sleeping in the boot, but I'm continuing to wear a Strasburg sock, which will pull my toes more towards my, my shin. In fact, as I'm speaking right now, I'm wearing it. So if you're thinking about ESWT, if you're thinking about extracorporeal shockwave therapy for a chronic injury, it's important to ask your doctor about the treatment protocol in terms of intensity, in terms of frequency, and that sort of thing. And also ask about the recovery protocol, since these vary from place to place. Uh, and by the way, not for nothing, most insurance companies don't actually cover ESWT since it's still considered experimental. This means that you'll be forking over some of your own money. I ultimately went with the doctor that I decided to go with because, one, he had an earlier appointment, and two, he was actually about 15% cheaper than the other doctor. The second thing I want to discuss today is the mindset of the injured athlete. Um, this is not my first injury, but it has been a very difficult injury for me mentally. I've never been in a place where I've been forced to sit out for this long during a time when I really didn't want to sit out. Uh, there's a lot of races that I want to be doing right now. I'm in a good place for right, in my life right now to be doing some training. I uh, have a lot of support from my family. 
uh, but yet I simply can't do it because my body won't cooperate with me. Uh, I'm not alone in this. About 70% of runners get injured throughout the course of a single year. That means on January 1st, if you were to ask people how many folks were injured in the prior year, ask runners, about 70% of them would say that they, they have been injured. Um, about 70% of triathletes get injured over the course of five years, uh, which means on January 1st, if you were to ask everybody over the course of the last five years, have you been injured? Uh, about 70% of triathletes would say that yes, they have been. Um, in cycling, it's really hard to nail down those numbers uh, because people use bikes for so many different purposes. Um, bike injuries do tend to be more significant uh, than, than injuries that aren't on bikes. As a matter of fact, bike injuries um, are only behind people who ride animals for sport, like equestrian and that sort of thing, in terms of the seriousness of their injuries or the rate of serious injuries. Um, there was a study that found that 50%, 50% of recreational mountain bikers and 80% of competition mountain bikers get injured each year. Uh, but mountain biking injuries only account for about 4% of all cycling injuries or all bicycle-related injuries. So even though I have a lot of company, I do feel very, very much not like myself. I feel disorganized and lazy and out of shape and without purpose. I feel disconnected from a lot of people that I care about. Um, and I just don't feel entirely myself as if I'm sort of incomplete. Um, there's not a whole lot of literature, scholarly literature, research literature out there about the mindset of injured people um, because there's a general accord that it's a crappy place to be. Uh, I know from doing research that when you are getting ready to prepare a research study, one of the things you do is you look for gaps in the literature. You see where is there a need for research to be done where research has not been done. Um, and there's widespread agreement among sports psychologists that being injured at a time when you don't want to be injured is not a great thing to do, um, not a great place to be. Uh, and there was a 1992 study that I did find that said that injured sportsmen were frustrated, depressed, and bored. Um, those are the primary characteristics that they said that they, they exhibited. Um, and that they actually had more negative mood profiles than people who did not do sports at all. So your average person's mood profile was better than an injured sportsman's mood profile. Um, compared to non-injured athletes, injured athletes were more tense, they were more hostile, they were more depressed. Uh, they're more unsure of themselves. Interestingly, they're more tired, um, and they're more confused than their non-injured peers, uh, confused both about themselves and their purpose in life, uh, and of course confused about their, their athletic future as well. Uh, there was also a 1988 study that I uncovered that's named aptly Psychological Effects of Running Loss on Consistent Runners. Running loss really stood out to me there. That um, said that so-called prevented runners. Um, prevented runner would be somebody who wants to run but yet is prevented from doing it uh, by an injury. Uh, they showed more signs of psychological distress uh, in terms of depression, anxiety, confusion, and overall mood disturbance. Uh, mood disturbance means that they're basically more volatile. Um, if you've ever been injured and you feel like you're, you're moodier or you're quick to fly off the handle or something like that, um, that is something that has very widely been noted among prevented runners. So this was very interesting stuff. It was good to know that, that I'm not alone in feeling the way that I feel when I'm injured, but it didn't quite satisfy me. I wanted to learn a little bit more about some of the psychology of injured people or about the way that the mind interacts with injury, if you will. So I went down a couple of different paths. I went into a couple of fairly shallow rabbit holes. Uh, and I started looking a little bit more at the link between psychology and injury and what's called the perceived susceptibility to injury. 
1996, there was a study, a fairly large study on more than 200 inline skaters uh, that said that if those skaters felt that they had... Uh, that they were susceptible to an injury, uh, they felt that, that they were vulnerable to an injury, that they would take protective steps. They were more likely to wear helmets and elbow pads and all that sort of thing. That makes sense. If you think you could possibly get injured, you're more likely to take steps to keep yourself from getting injured. Um, but follow-up studies have demonstrated that, in fact, people who are uh, believing that they are susceptible to an injury will take other preventative actions, such as stretching or even a more conservative approach or fewer risks in their training and things like that, which I think is interesting. A uh, 2008 study started to dig in a little bit more uh, into what would make someone believe that they had a perceived susceptibility to injury. Why, what would make someone think that they were vulnerable to an injury? Uh, and that study suggested that uh, previous experience with an injury was a significant positive predictor of a perceived susceptibility to an injury. Um, in addition, there was a 2011 study that said if you believe that you are similar to other people who have been injured and you believe that you have control over whether you get injured, those things also directly correlate with or contribute to perceived susceptibility. So in other words, if you've seen other people who are like you be injured, or you have yourself been injured, um, and you believe that you can prevent yourself from being injured by taking certain steps, uh, that you have control over that situation, then you will in fact take those steps. Now, interestingly, there was another thing that also correlated with susceptibility to injury, uh, and it's what's called obsessive passion. Uh, in psychology circles, they talk about obsessive passion um, among people who have this uncontrollable urge to engage in their work or in their passion uh, or in their hobby. Uh, there's a lot of conflict between the thing that they care about against their training in this, uh, in this case and their other areas of their life. Uh, and their work or their hobby or whatever it is uh, forms a very large part of their often unstable and negative self-concept. Uh, self-concept is something we're going to talk about in a later podcast. Um, and so generally, obsessive passion is is something that causes discord in your life and can ultimately lead to, to breakdown. Um, they contrasted that with harmonious passion. Harmonious passion is when things are balanced in your life. Uh, you are in control of, of your passions, of your work, of your hobby. You feel good about yourself while you're, while you're doing your hobby, while you're working, uh, and you find everything to be in harmony, therefore harmonious passion. So obsessive passion, which in most ways is something negative to be avoided, was a predictor and a contributor to susceptibility to injury, which in turn was a predictor of wearing protective gear. In other words, people who are obsessively passionate, which is a negative thing, will tend to take steps to keep themselves from getting injured, which is a positive thing. People who have a good balance among their sporting life and the rest of their life, people who feel uplifted by the sports that they do, are less likely to take steps to keep themselves from getting injured, including wearing protective gear and building up their mileage in careful and mindful ways. Um, side note, by the way, um, I also read another study, a 1987 study, about running versus weightlifting and the treatment of depression. 
Uh, they actually took 30 different women with clinical depression. They gave 10 of them an exercise program that involved running, aerobic exercise. They gave 10 of them a exercise program that involved weightlifting, non-aerobic exercise. And, of course, they just had 10 continue to do whatever it was that they were doing. Uh, they gave them a 12-week program. They checked with them three times throughout the course of the program. They checked with them one month after the program was done, seven months after the program was done, and one year after the program was done. And no surprise to anybody who does exercise, they found that the exercisers, the people who were given exercise, showed greatly diminished amounts of depression, uh, not only during the program itself, but also a year later. But interestingly, they found that the aerobic and non-aerobic effects were indistinguishable. In other words, you don't have to be running a lot in order to deal with your depression to reduce depression. You can also get the same depression-reducing effect from actually just going and lifting weights. So, today, that's what I did. <laughs> uh, takeaways from all of this stuff about injury, all these rabbit holes that I went down over the course of the past few couple of weeks. Uh, first of all, if you feel like I do right now, that you're moodier and crankier and less easy to get along with and generally more emotional when you're injured, uh, know that that's common. It's part of what happens and has always happened to sports people when we suffer injuries. Uh, second takeaway, if you have a healthy relationship with the sport, which is great, which is good, you're less likely to take steps to keep yourself safe and healthy. Uh, being aware of that is something that I think can help you to take those steps. Um, just because you feel good about the sport doesn't make you less susceptible to injury, even though it does reduce your perception of your susceptibility to injury. Third and finally, if you're feeling in the dumps thanks to an injury, you can also alleviate those symptoms by doing pretty much any exercise. If you can't run, you can ride a bike, and that will stave off a lot of those depressive feelings. If you can't do that, you can swim. If you can't do any of those, like I am right now, you can go to the gym and you can lift some weights, and that will still have the same depression-reducing effect as aerobic exercise. <laughs> And that brings our first show to a close. Make sure to check in with us at Twitter on at Pleasant Podcast, on Facebook at Facebook.com slash Pleasant Podcast, and on our blog at mostpleasantexhaustion.blogspot.com. Don't forget to check in with ITL Coaching as well. They're on Twitter at ITL Coaching. They're on Facebook, Facebook.com slash ITL Coaching and Performance, and of course at ITLcoaching.com. Let us know whether you've had an injury. Let us know what sort of treatment you had to undergo for that injury, whether it was successful. If you're in one right now, by all means, tell us about that as well. Uh, and then, of course, let us know your mindset. Do the research that we cited, does that sound familiar to you right now, or have you found a good, solid way to cope? By all means, I'm personally interested in your answer to that one. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next week.